In the movie A Few Good Men, Jack Nicholson's character, Colonel Nathan Jessup, utters the now famous line, you can't handle the truth. In the speech that follows, he added, you want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Resilient Journey podcast sponsored by Clear Risk. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman, and today we're speaking with a man you want and need on your cybersecurity team. Imran Ahmad. Imran is a partner and the head of technology, as well as the co-chair of data protection, privacy, and cybersecurity at Norton Rose Fulbright. Imran is a breach coach, the quarterback provided by cyber insurance policies to provide practical guidance when your organization is responding to a cyber attack. Imran's insights are pure gold, and we'll get into my conversation with him after we hear from my friends at Clear Risk. Navigating changes in the risk landscape can be daunting without access to the right tools. ClearRisk's centralized risk management solution streamlines the process of data collection and analysis, helping customers make impactful decisions and focus on big picture initiatives. ClearRisk provides a highly configurable, easy to use solution that gives our customers the confidence to inform decision-making and proactively optimize risk in their organizations. Effective risk management begins with data you can trust. Learn more at clearrisk.com. Imran, thank you so much for being a guest on The Resilient Journey. I've been looking forward to this episode. Uh, Before we get into the meat of the interview, give a little background on yourself and how you got your start in cyber-related law. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Really excited about this conversation we're going to be having. Uh, My background was a bit of a a checkered one getting into cybersecurity. I... uh, I have a technology background in law and over over the past 10 years or so, started looking at the area of cybersecurity a bit more carefully and started the first cybersecurity practice at one of my older firms at where I used to work. Interestingly enough, uh, 10 years ago, this really wasn't a, a key area for a lot of organizations. I saw a turning point when we heard about those big breaches that came out several years ago related to Target, Sony, and Home Depot. And when we saw that a lot of organizations, senior executives were being pulled into court cases and before Congress and, and other kinds of high profile investigations, that's where I saw a bit of a change, literally like the switch hadn't flipped and uh, everybody was focused on cybersecurity. What's interesting is over the past five years, cyber has been in the top three areas of focus for any C-suite executive. Um, and it hasn't even stopped in the pandemic actually Cybersecurity, according to World Economic Forum, is in the top two areas that keep people up at night when they think about their business. So I was fortunate enough to get into this much earlier than when um, when it started getting on people's radars, uh, not only doing incident response related work, which I'm sure we're going to talk about, but also helping organizations prepare, which is an area which is a bit less known here in Canada, what to do before an incident occurs. There's some specific things we typically recommend both on the legal, but certainly on the technical side of things as well. But uh, that was my, my journey to get into this area. Now, you're a breach coach. In fact, you're one of the most highly regarded breach coaches. And uh, I, I, I'm sure that made you cringe a little bit. Um, but for those who might not understand, give us an idea of what a breach coach does. That's a really good question, and it's one that gets asked on a regular basis uh, when I get on phone calls with clients. Um, even the term breach coach is, is one that has evolved over time. 
uh, if you go back about 10, 15 years, and it really came from the area of insurance, uh, the term was actually privacy council, uh, where really big concern stemming from a cybersecurity incident was coming from the fact that there may be some personal information involved and you need to get a privacy lawyer engaged in that incident. Um, what's interesting is obviously cybersecurity has evolved significantly over the years, uh, not only limited to personal information, but certainly including other things such as um, intellectual property, trade secrets, or other kinds of very sensitive corporate data. So as a result, the role and the title, quite frankly, has evolved significantly, which is now that breach coach title you just talked about. Um, when we talk about the breach coach role, it's actually an important one, uh, not trying to be self-serving, but there's really three areas that where we help clients in particular. Um, there are other areas, but three that really we focus on. Number one is to ensure that there is proper legal privilege set up for the investigation that's going to happen. You know, clients want to do the right thing, but quite frankly, in the first few hours and days, we don't know what's going to happen in an incident. So as a best practice, the idea here is to retain counsel. Counsel is then going to retain other vendors as needed, could be on the forensic side of things, it could be on crisis communication, it could be a variety of other areas. And, and the logic there is if you have a vendor such as a forensic firm doing work so that the lawyer, the external breach counsel, can give advice to the client, their work product will potentially be covered by a legal privilege. And that's an important piece because in some cases, you know, a client and their lawyer want to have the most open conversation possible to canvas all options, good or bad, facing the organization. And I'll tell you, in cybersecurity, my experience has been you rarely get good or bad options. You only get bad and worse options. So those are really difficult conversations to have and decisions to make. Um, so privilege is really key. Bucket number two, which is probably the most relevant one and the one that people naturally gravitate around is the legal exposure or the legal guidance that we provide clients as breach counsel. Um, there's sort of three subcategories, if I, if I say that. Um, one would be sort of contractual, second would be statutory, and the third one would be engaging with law enforcement. There are others in there, but those are really the three areas where clients are in real time seeking guidance from counsel to see what they need to do, have to do, should be doing uh, from a legal standpoint. And then lastly, certainly we're not communication experts at all. You know, I, I would say I'm probably not the right person if you want me to draft a press release per se. However, if something is going to be put out, maybe a communication to staff members uh, or a notice being sent to customers, corporate customers, for example, or even a press release or a public disclosure, then we want to have eyes on that so that we can tell them, you know what, you may want to tweak this word, this meaning may be not appropriate given what we're actually aware of in, in terms of the situation that we're dealing with and so on. So there's a bit of a communication, working with crisis communication experts to make sure that we've got the right messaging, the right wording, and the right approach. So in a nutshell, uh, Mark, those are really the three key buckets where we're helping clients on a day-to-day -day basis, basically acting as a quarterback and making sure that the investigation moves along those lines. I want to jump on something that you said, your first bucket there, and that's ensuring proper legal privilege. I've been reading a number of articles lately, globally, not uh, just in Canada, but where judges are dismissing claims of privilege and forcing organizations to release forensic reports and things like that. What I'm assuming here is that these organizations are doing what I recommend to clients and what you just said, and that's to have legal counsel order the forensic audit or order certain work to be done and you know to try to protect that privilege 
it's a bit of a slippery slope, isn't it? I mean, what do you recommend to clients when it comes to privilege? So that's a million dollar question in many ways, Mark. Um, you know, what is privilege and how should it be used and where is it appropriate? And I did emphasize the word appropriate because privilege is not absolute and privilege should not be used for things which are inappropriate. And the reason I say that is when we're investigating something, there's a very simple process when it comes to legal privilege. Uh, if you have a vendor, a forensic firm, for example, which is going to go into your system and do a couple of things in a cyber incident, for example, containing the incident, securing it, making sure you're restoring it, and then doing a forensic, which is basically determining how this actually happened, building the chronology. You're going to find things as you do that. Um, what I typically need and for there to be legal privilege is for that forensic firm to give me information that I can then use to give legal advice to the client. Obviously, lawyers are, although they can, they can be very technical, I know I have a technology background myself. I'm not a forensic investigator per se. And so for me to say to the client, look, you have no obligation from a privacy law standpoint to notify individuals. I can't just make that blanket statement without knowing what we know or what we will find out in a forensic report. So it's quite appropriate and legitimate for me to be able to assert privilege on a forensic report for that purpose, meaning to give legal advice. But the, the principle of privilege is still very strong here in Canada and globally. The, the, it's a fundamental you know, justice principle or pillar of our legal system where a lawyer and, and the client can speak openly. And so the advice I give clients coming back to your question is, look, let's be practical. Let's make sure that at the end day, we're actually giving you legal advice with the privilege is appropriately attached. And more practically, I'm explaining the mechanics of privilege. Copying a lawyer on an email doesn't assert privilege. You know, two non-lawyers in a company sending an email to one another writing privilege and confidential doesn't make that document privileged. So understanding the mechanics, understanding the fundamentals of where it comes from, and then quite frankly, judicially, uh, judiciously understanding where it would apply and applying it that way, that's the approach we typically take. One of the things I put in all of my cyber response plans is when the cyber lead comes to the crisis management team for the first time to tell them what's going on with the situation. My plan says, at the request of legal counsel, the cyber lead will present a report on the situation. I think what I'm going to include in those statements going forward is at the request of legal counsel, in order for them to give proper legal advice, the cyber lead will present. Do, do you think something like that helps protect privilege going forward? Yeah. So two, two points on that, because you make a really, really good point there. Uh, firstly, when non-lawyers are preparing documents which are relevant to a cybersecurity incident, so think of, for example, a chronology that an IT person within the company is going to build just to keep track what happened. Certainly, they can there put in privilege and confidential, but it has to be followed by prepared at the request of legal counsel or, or breach counsel or external counsel. That's absolutely critical because just writing it on, on your own without being a lawyer won't just assert privilege on it. It has to have the intent and the purpose of me ultimately giving legal advice to the client. So that's, that's point number one. Point number two, which is exactly the point that you had made, you know, when we get engagement letters or statements of work from different vendors, you know, cybersecurity, forensic firms, and so on, one of the key things we put in that agreement is to, first of all, make sure it's a tripartite agreement, meaning between my law firm and me, uh, the client, 
as well as a service provider. But the way the structure is described at the front end is exactly what you said. You know that my firm is going to retain this forensic firm for the benefit of this client who I'm representing and very specifically so that I can assist them in providing them legal advice. And, and that has to be very clearly defined throughout. And the work product also has to be defined with those kind of uh, statements within it. When it comes to paying a ransom, walk me through that process. Uh, do you ever pay like the initial demand? Is there a negotiation process? And when it comes to payment, what does that look like and how's that all done? So advice number one is keep all options open. What does that mean? It means open up two swim lanes. Swim lane number one, you got a team within your organization or through the IT firm checking whether that you can restore from backups and quite frankly, checking an allegation whether the attacker stole the data or not and Uber intensifying the effort on that one because the more information you know, the more effective you're going to be in potentially negotiating with the attacker. Swim lane number two is you open up conversation or communication with a threat actor to do a couple of things. One, to make sure that they actually have the data. So you ask for some kind of proof of life. You also ask them for a copy of a decryption example. So you send them an encrypted file, they send it back to decrypted that typically evidences that they can provide you with an effective decryptor. And we try to get some intelligence from them as well. Uh, what that means is sometimes attackers will provide you a file tree. You know, Imran, uh, I hit your company. Your company has a lot of data. By the way, here's a file tree screenshot to show you where I was at and what I would have looked and pulled from your system. Um, so we try to get that kind of intelligence while we're figuring out the backup situation. The, the negotiation itself or the back and forth with the attacker is never done by the client, at least not recommended to be done by the client. Right. At the end, they, they are criminals that you're dealing with and you don't want to be directly conversing with them. And quite frankly, they have psychological techniques that they use to raise the temperature in the room and force people into a payment. So long story short, uh, the approach is to get a third-party vendor to get in there and negotiate on behalf of the client. Worst case scenario, if you do not have a decryptor or the organization has opted to pay because of all kinds of other considerations, including needing to mitigate or reduce the risk related to data theft and its release, um, then we get into this phase of negotiating down the amounts. And that varies from one threat attacker group to another in terms of the kind of discounts that they're willing to accept. Um, if a deal is to be had, then this third party who's been negotiating for the company uh, would be um, the one that receives payment from either the client or the insurance firm if there's insurance involved. Uh, they're the ones who go onto the cryptocurrency market you know, to buy Bitcoin or Monero. And they're the ones who then settle the payment with the attacker and then get the decryption and some kind of proof of deletion. One really important point I'll, I'll leave with your listeners because ransomware is a tricky area. If an organization or a threat actor or the cyber attacker essentially is on a sanction list, so the United States has what we call the Office of Foreign Asset Control, you've got DFATE here in Canada, there's Interpol globally and others as well. If these criminal groups or criminal individuals, if identified, are on a list, you can't make a payment. You may have to get an exemption or maybe forego the payment option altogether because potentially paying somebody who's on a sanction list would be a criminal act. Um, so that can be a, a, a tricky piece to explain and to go through. In fairness, 99% of times the attackers are not on a sanction list and where, where they are, um, you know, the client knows that pretty early in the process. 
so they can canvas other options. But the sanction check piece is one which has gotten a lot of visibility and notoriety in recent years. And that goes back to that legal guidance that uh, the breach coach is providing, particularly in the statutory area. One of the three areas that you had mentioned earlier about the uh, services that a breach coach provides is uh, guidance around whether or not to engage law enforcement. And, and that's one of the key areas that I always talk to clients about. And I've attended conferences where police officers are encouraging the audience to engage them and lawyers are discouraging against it. So what's your recommendation for engaging law enforcement? And what's all the concern about? When we're talking with clients, the key point that I make is we want to manage expectations. Different clients have different expectations of what law enforcement may or may not be able to do for them. Our advice has typically been, you want to engage with law enforcement. The key is going to be when to engage with law enforcement and what are you expecting them to do specifically to help you in the situation. So the number one priority for clients is always to get up and running, either you know operationally or for the incident not to be disruptive to the point where their operations from a day-to-day standpoint are materially impacted. And to get to that point, you need to have all hands on deck and really focused on, like I mentioned earlier, the containment and the restoration part of, P- of things. What we, what we find with law enforcement, it varies, but generally speaking, their mandate is very different than what ours is. It's not to help the company get back up and running. It is to find the bad guys and bring it to justice. And to do that, they need specific what we call indicators of compromise or IOCs. So, If you call law enforcement on minute one of the incident, they're certainly going to send somebody to get a report taken down, but then they're going to ask the client a lot of questions about IOCs that I just mentioned to you. So this could include the ransom note. This could include possibly an image of a server and other information that they need to do their investigation. But that takes a bandwidth. And not all organizations have the ability to dedicate a person or two or more to deal with the law enforcement piece. So the advice we give the clients is, look, focus on the critical piece, which is getting up and running. Unless you're in a regulated industry or required to notify law enforcement under your insurance policy or for other reasons, um, go ahead and focus on the restoration. Once the dust settled a little bit, uh, and we typically know what law enforcement needs, let's go ahead and report the incident to law enforcement. Ultimately, what the, the positive side of all of this, quite frankly, between you and I, Mark, is we are seeing some action on the law enforcement side. They are actually bringing people to justice. There is more uh, cooperation going on. And I can tell you in Canada in particular, we're seeing more and more prosecution happening uh, where the threat actor is located in the country. Well, let's build into our response plans then that the technical teams kind of gather up the breadcrumbs, gather up those IOCs as they go along so that that can help us be more efficient when we do go ahead and engage law enforcement. That's great advice. I like that. Speaking of advice, if you had to give one piece of advice to an organization, maybe somebody's listening and they realize, man, we're way behind the curve here. Where should they start and name one or two things that they absolutely must do? So I have one word for your listeners, and it may sound trite, but it's, it's critical. It's preparation. There is a direct correlation between preparation on the front end and a successful, quote unquote, cyber incident response. There's a concept in cybersecurity known as cyber resiliency, which is basically an organization being punched in the gut and being able to bounce back up very quickly. The longer it takes a company to get up and running, the lower the resiliency, the quicker they can do it, the higher the resiliency. 
And, and to do that, you can't just wish it. You have to actually prepare for it. And if there's one piece that I would recommend an organization do is pull out their cyber into response plan, but there's something unique here. It's not the typical piece I'm going to mention that you hear at conferences. Um, the plan has to be practical. And there's three things I recommend the plan have uh, that I don't see a lot of. I see really thick binder type you know, um, incident response plans. But when we look for the most critical information, it's not there. And here's, here's what I think they should be looking for. Number one, having a clear list of vendors listed on your sheet as an appendix or schedule with an A team, a B team in case you can get to the A team and their contact details and the sequence in which you will contact them. We've talked about the breach code, which is fine. But if you want, if you have a list in front of you and the IT person is going to go down that list, they may pull up the phone line for the forensic firm and that may not be appropriate. So the advice we have is build a schedule which will have a list of all of the vendors, legal included. You can have my firm and another firm, but you need to have at least a couple of options listed there because we're seeing a lot of what we call aggregate events, meaning incidents happening at the same time across multiple organizations. And the bandwidth and the capacity to get a good forensic firm on deck quickly gets reduced in those kind of situations. Wow. So having your firm number A, and if they're tied up or don't respond quickly enough, go to firm number B. Same thing for law firm A, law firm B, and so on. So that's really critical. The second piece where we lose some time, quite frankly, is when we get on a call with the forensic firm and the client, and the forensic firm is asking questions about the IT infrastructure. They will ask questions like, how many systems do you have? How many endpoints do you have? What kind of endpoint detection tool are you using? And so on. And often the client gives a very general answers because they don't know, or it's such a large environment that is evolving. They're not sure exactly what the count would be. And that makes it difficult for a couple of reasons. One, you don't know where to focus because it, it's difficult to secure the house if you don't know how many doors it has. Um, so they, they take longer to secure. Secondly, um, the tracking of progress for the security and containment is, is basically a shot in the dark. You, if you don't know, you don't know how to report that up to management. So the advice we have for clients is, look, we don't need to know everything, but certainly know where your critical assets are kept. Like how many employees do you have right now who are working remotely that have laptops? Ask somebody right now. It can be a difficult question to answer. Um, same thing. How many systems, virtual systems and so on do you have? that we need to secure on a critical basis. How many legacy systems do you have that are still operating, but, but, but not really critical to your day-to-day -day operation that we could possibly even take offline or may have been the point of entry? Um, those are kind of things we need to have quickly because you can lose hours, if not days, as a result of that. And then the third thing I recommend having in that incident response plan is what we call uh, a data inventory. We talked about different types of information a client can have. Uh, we talked about personal information for employees and consumers, talked about you know, trade secrets, IP, other types of sensitive data. You know, for different companies, different things are most critical. I was working with a manufacturing company where the uh, technical designs were the most critical piece for them. Certainly privacy was important, but the technical designs were absolute gold for them. Uh, knowing where they're located and then having the forensic firm focus their investigation the first few hours to say, yep, you know what? This system was not touched by the attacker. That will help you tremendously in communicating that to your clients who are going to call you and say, hey, sorry, you got an incident here that happened, but it was my data impacted. You can give them a confident or at least as confident answer to say, nope, your information wasn't because we were able to look into it on a priority basis and we can give you the green light that nothing happened.
So those would be the three areas I would recommend people focus on on the incident response side, not just having a protocol, which is a given, but really understanding making it practical. That's great practical advice, and it's, it's fantastic. So let me get you out of here on this. If folks uh, want to get in touch with you to learn more about this or learn more about your services, how do they do that? Yeah, no, great question. And I say this sort of jokingly, uh, my name, Imran Ahmad, is actually a pretty common name in India. If you just Google my name, you'll find a lot of them. But if you if you Google Imran Ahmad and lawyer, there's some materials I've, I've uh, written over the years uh, on this topic. Uh, hopefully some helpful guidance uh, for clients and others who are interested in the area. So feel free to, to Google me. Uh, I'm on Norton Rose's website as well. There's my contact detail on it with my email address and phone number. Always happy to have a conversation, but uh, hopefully easy to track down uh, through, the, uh, through the Google search engine there. Yeah, and we can put some links in the show notes here too as well. So Imran, thank you so much. We could talk all day. I mean, I'm just fascinated by what you do. I didn't even get to all the questions on my list. Um, and I'm sure as we go forward with the Resilient Journey podcast, we'll do another series on cybersecurity. And I'd love to have you back to keep the conversation going. Thanks for having me. It was a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Mark. Special thanks to our guest in episode three, Imran Ahmad, the quarterback, the breach coach. He provided some excellent advice for things that we need to make sure we include in our cyber response plans. And a special thanks also to our friends at Clear Risk for sponsoring the Resilient Journey podcast. We'll wrap up this first series on cybersecurity in episode four by speaking with Sean Sullivan. Sean is the CEO of Usado, a company that provides 24 by 7 cybersecurity and compliance services. Join us next time, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey.